I'm Michael Counts, and this is the lucky episode, episode 13 of Producing Innovation. Um, and I'm super excited to be here today with my dear friend, David Wise, who was, you have to know this, I don't know if I told you this, we're on the very first list that I made of people I wanted to have on this podcast about producing innovation because, you know, I and we all wanted it to be not just sort of in art or theater or in the space that we kind of exist, but but really looking at innovation more broadly from business and technology and, and really, I mean, innovation can touch any and everything. Um, and the reason I thought of, of wanting to have you on is one, you to me are someone, and we'll get into your love of uh, escape rooms later, um, but you're someone that to me is very like paying attention to, at least in the form of immersive entertainment, what's the new, mm. what's the next, you know, sort of the next frontier of immersive entertainment. But also, David is a high-level management consultant at Corn Ferry, um, which describes itself as uh, a global organizational consulting firm synchronizing strategy and talent to drive superior performance for their clients. And my thought, you know, in, in thinking about bringing you on was to say, you know, what if I'm a company and I'm seeking to improve our creativity and innovation as a company um, and I say, well, in, in, our internal resources don't suffice. We want to go get some serious outside <laughs> help and you you and your company um, serve as advisors to management and boards of major companies, Fortune 10 companies. Okay, so let's play that out. Like, I'm, I'm a client and I come to you, Dave, and I say, we just, we need to innovate. My teams aren't creative. There's some connection. The synapses aren't firing right as our, within our organization. How do, we, how do we improve that? How do we, you know, strengthen that muscle? That's one thing I definitely want to get into. And two is, you know, I just would love your perspective on, on just generally on the things that excite you, the, the reason you love escape rooms and the reason you've done more than anybody I know and why you spent a couple of months researching the perfect grill. You know, these are all aspects to me of, of innovation and, 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 and how one applies that perspective to one's life, one's work, um, and providing service for others. So um, maybe to start with that little long uh, preamble, um, tell us about your background as a business person, as a consultant, tell us a little bit about Corn Ferry, and then you can dive from whatever angle you want into that bigger question about how would you help me be innovative? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. How do you produce innovation? How do you produce anything? It's always been about reinventing a form. I think we're all in this room together because we believe in lifelong learning. It's all about persistence. If you give up, that's the end of the game. You have no chance. I wanted to go make my own mistakes in pursuit of, I didn't even know what at the time. Show up. Show up when you fail. Show up when you fail miserably. Show up when you don't want to show up. There's an audacity that I think is required to, to be a creator. Just start, like don't wait for permission. Sit down at the table with some of the great creators, some of the people who have cut new ground and found a new path and done things that are like improbable and ludicrous and wonderful and for which we should all be grateful in the worlds of art and theater and music and technology and innovation. You're listening to Producing Innovation. We know each other off 
camera, um, and we've known each other for a few years, so it is a genuine thrill to be able to do this with you, and just a lot of fun. Um, I'm glad I was on that list, at the top of that list. It, it did take 13 episodes um, to get <laughs> that, was, that was a scheduling issue. He's a busy, he's a busy man. Okay, so you can blame me. But uh, it, it is great to be here. And, and you know, listen, uh, you know, Corn Ferry is an organization that advises companies on how to succeed. So we are a talent and organizational consultancy. Um, and so, you know, the only thing we don't do is help you figure out your strategy to make money or create value. But like everything else that we do is about creating value for the organization and helping you execute on that strategy. And, you know, Peter Drucker is this longtime management guru. And, you know, he said very early on, you know, culture and people eat strategy for breakfast. You know, our business is basically built on that foundation of you can have the right strategy, but if you don't have the right people and the right organization to support that, help them be successful, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I got into this because, you know, I came out of um, university 20-something years ago. Um, I went to a very progressive college and came out as like this hardcore, progressive environmental organizer. Right, like I was long-haired, in your face, like fighting for saving the world, basically. Um, but what I loved about that was not so much the cause, I was into the cause, it was more for me um, just the interplay between people and exerting influence. So, you know, when you're in progressive politics, uh, you know, there, there's two sources of power in politics, there's money and there's people. And like the good guys never have money, we only have people. And so every interaction, whether it was with a congressman or someone on the street or you're you know, with the clipboard going door to door, it is all about how do I engage this person and motivate them to take on behavior that helps our cause, to be with us. And so it was really the study of human motivation and that's what I went to business school for. I got my MBA, I joined Hay Group, which was then acquired by Corn Ferry, I was a partner there. Uh, I am a partner there, and our business is the study of human motivation. And so everything that we talk about when you think about innovation, you think about how organizations work, you know, the unit that matters is the person, it's the individual. It's the behavioral science input into what creates success. And so that's why I do what I do. You know, I consider it mission-driven. I think this work is really important because it predicts success and it impacts people's lives. So um, I'm proud to do what I do. It's not always easy, um, but I do love it. Awesome. So let's, let's, let's go fundamental. Like let's talk about innovation. Like what, what do you, when, what, how do you know it when you see it? And, and how do you support it in an organization? How do you support it in an individual? I mean, you know, listen, there have been reams and reams of data, research, books that are out there on how you do this. And it's, you know, there, there's this disconnect between, you know, this concept of innovation and structuring that for an organization, how you um, amplify and implement something like that. And, and so, you know, knowing that I was going to come in and talk to you about this, I like did some research, right? Like I went on the Google, right, on the internets. <laughs> And, but I, you know, Corn Ferry puts out a bunch of stuff on this. And so I went through like all of our stuff, all the stuff that we have. And, you know, there's a, and 
angle on innovation in just about everything that we do, but the one common denominator, the one unit that matters is the person. So at the end of the day, and by the way, I don't like to use the word innovation because I think even when I hear it, I like stiffen up. I'm like, oh crap, you know, we gotta go be innovative now. And it, it paradoxically creates this tension. For us and for me, innovation is about creation of new value, Some, creating something that is useful and has value. And so when I think about um, creation of value, there are things that organizations do to unlock that in people, but it will always come from people every time. Like that's where it comes from. So if it comes from people, like, you know, what do you need to do to, to tease that out? Our research would suggest, and some of this is research and some of this is just intuition, um, that to get the best out of your people, you need a culture and a climate that supports creation, that gives them permission to do that. Um, so culture and climate are words that you hear thrown around a lot. You know, cult, think about culture as um, like the way we do things. You know, it's the personality of the organization. It's our values and beliefs, the way we do things. Climate is kind of how it feels, right? You know, what it feels like here. And climate is really driven by leaders. So there's the organization and then there's leaders and how they behave. You need those things to be aligned to create an environment of creation. Mm. Um, and you know, there's a lot of different playbooks around what elements make up a culture of innovation. I have my own view on that, but it really starts with the culture and the climate. And, and I can't overstate the importance of culture. Culture is everything. You know, you, you don't get out the front door, you don't get out of the driveway. Um, without a culture that supports you doing what you need to do. Have you ever heard of the, the study of the five monkeys? Mm. So this is one of my favorite culture stories. So there's this study done many years ago about the five monkeys and, and what they did, I don't think you could do it today because it might be considered you know cruel and unusual, but these scientists took these five monkeys and they put them in this enclosure and um, there was nothing in the enclosure except a ladder and a bunch of bananas at the top of the uh, top of the ladder. And so, you know, you're a monkey and you're in there with four of your buddies and you see there's a ladder with bananas and so they're all scrambling to get up there to get the banana. So the first mon monkey gets up there and grabs the bananas and as soon as he does that, the rest of the monkeys get showered with ice cold water, right? <laughs> so half an hour goes by, they put more bananas up there, same monkey goes up, the rest of them get showered with ice cold water. So the third time that it happens, you know, the monkey sees the bananas, starts to go up, and his, his buddies just grab him and literally give him like a monkey beating, right? Like, like, you're not going back up there to get that banana. So after a while, they all know, okay, we don't go to get the bananas, because um, every time we do, we get soaked. So the scientists um, swap out one of the monkeys, and they put in a new monkey that hasn't seen any of this before. Put up bananas, the new monkey's like, oh, bananas, awesome goes up and as he does, the other monkeys grab him, beat him up, don't let him go and, and get the bananas. They take another one out and a new monkey comes in, sees the bananas, goes up, tries to grab him. And this time, the monkey that was new before participates in the beating of the new monkey who's doesn't trying to get why. the bananas. Doesn't know why, it's just doing it. And so you get to the point where at some point there are no monkeys in the enclosure 
that were included in the original experiment, right? None of them have been showered by any cold water, and none of them, by the way, have eaten a banana yet. Um, and yet every time a new monkey comes in, the other monkeys know we beat up monkeys that go for bananas, right? And, you know, that's the power of culture. And if you could take a, you know, if you could take aside one of the monkeys and say, why do you guys beat up monkeys that go for the ladder and the banana? Like, what are they going to say, right? They're going to be like, you know, I don't know. That's just kind of how we do things around here, right? And they have no idea why. And, and, you know, that is the power and the impact of culture. It will dictate what we do, what we don't do. And if you want people to feel the agency in being able to create, you need a culture that doesn't punish it, that does support it, so that every time you go for that banana, you're not getting beat up and your buddies aren't getting soaked by ice cold water. Um, so if culture is a critical input, to what I'll call creation, you know, there are tactics that organizations can use to promote and build a culture like that. Wow. That's a fantastic example. That is like the most sort of concise explanation of, of culture and, and, and motivations and the, the complexity of human behavior that I think I've ever heard. That's fantastic. As you think about... Um, you know, the next question is, is often, you know, like, well, how do you create a culture of creation or innovation? And, you know, that part's trickier because, again, it just doesn't feel right to um, create an environment for creation. But um, there are things that organization, that we advise organizations to do to kind of create that space for people. Um, it comes down to three things, typically. Uh, it is sort of number one is um, you have to create the, the actual space for people to um, create creation, you know, and, and give them the room to do it where there's no opportunity cost to doing it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I used to run um, in my business, I'm a, I'm a senior partner at Corn Ferry, I lead our private equity group in North America. And, you know, we used to do these offsites, these two-day offsites for our juniors and mids for skills development and training and all this stuff. And what we did on the second day of the training was we set aside an hour and a half with no agenda. And, um, you know, people would see it on the agenda. They wouldn't know what it was. And once we got there, um, the only to-do for that hour and a half, there was no group activity. It was, we want you to work on something that you're interested in and that you think help solve a problem, either for you or for our business or for our clients. Um, it can't be something that you're working on live for a client. It's not billable work as consultants do. All we ask is that you spend an hour and a half on it. There's nothing else you were gonna be doing because I had reserved this space for you, so there's no opportunity cost. And all we ask is that by the end of it, you tell us kind of what you were working on and what, if anything, you've learned from it, right? And, you know, we had 20 people do this. At the end of it, they all talked a little bit about what they had spent time on. And out of the 20, three people came up with something that turned into something in our business, no matter how small or how big. Um, it had impact, which I thought was a pretty good hit rate for and a good investment for like 90 minutes of an offsite. But creating the space for them and the permission to do that, I think is critical and that's the first thing that you need to do um, to 
help to have the culture support that kind of permission. The second thing you would do is um, you, you, all, you need to give people permission to um, learn. And I mean, I hate to say the word fail, but like most of this stuff is like not going to end up as anything, right? Sometimes innovation or creation ends up, you know, in the circular file. That's okay. And that's beside the point. So I think the second point is people need to know that it's okay if this doesn't result in anything, as long as we know what we're aiming it at. Um, and as long as we are going through the act of trying new things, um, that is what yields results. And so the way that you do that isn't, you know, what did you create for me this month? But like, if I'm your manager, it's Michael, like, you know, what did you work on this month and what did you learn from it? Like, what was interesting about it? Did we get anything from it? But that's great or, you know, too bad. Let's do it again next month. So, you know, there's something in this permission to fail that enables a culture to enable creation. And I think the third thing, just very simply, is, um, you know, kind of changing your center of gravity to some extent. So, um, do you ever see the movie Bull Durham? Um, so, it's this movie where this very young, boisterous baseball pitcher is has great potential but um, you know he's he's he can't get out of his own head he's really struggling on the mound when he's throwing pitches so his girlfriend Susan Sarandon um, takes him and says here's what we're gonna do I'm gonna put a garter belt on you while you're pitching which makes this kid very uncomfortable um, but all of a sudden he starts pitching great why because he's not he's, he's getting out of his head he's focused on you know why am I wearing this garter belt while I'm pitching in a baseball game? But it changed his center of gravity a little bit. And you need to do that. There's times when we can be so focused on a problem that you almost lose the forest for the trees. And sometimes you need to take a step back, get another angle on the problem. Um, but diversity is a big part of that. Like that is, as you think about diversity of thought and background, like that's where you wanna bring people in who have different perspectives and shift your, um, your center of gravity a little bit so that you're thinking about the problem through a different part of your brain. Um, we believe in intuition. Intuition is huge. You've got to give your intuition opportunities to come out. Um, and you do that not through the conscious mind, but by playing with it a little bit and through more of the subconscious. So those are sort of three tactics that you might use as you think about creating a culture of creation that we've seen be useful and that kind of aligns with how we know people to be wired and how we know humans operate. Katie here. We're taking a quick break from the episode to remind you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook Accounts Projects or on our website accountsprojects.com. It's the best way to keep up with our current work and find out more about what we're working on. Okay, back to the episode. Given, given those, those three points, one company known for innovation in our you know sort of recent history is Google that comes to mind and, and they um, and their idea of allowing their employees 10% of their time to work on whatever they want. Are there other companies 
that, and by the way, some of the things that we know today, I've understood that, like, from what I read somewhere about Google, that, like, Gmail grew out of that 10%, and many other things that, that sort of dominate media and our day-to-day experience of life today grew out of that 10% yeah. innovation. Are there other companies that, that to you, or, or entities, it could be an individual, a filmmaker, whatever, that you feel like are making great use of those three things and, and are innovative as a result? You know, I work with a wide variety of organizations, right? So I, I mean, I lead our private equity groups, so I look at these, working with these small startups that are building it as they go. And I work with you know, Comcast, which is this behemoth that seemingly you know has it all figured out. Um, both of them put the same. Both types of organizations tend to put the same emphasis on the importance of innovation. How they go about it and get it tends to be different. Um, when I think about creation, I'm less focused on a Gmail because I think everyone associates with that. I think about you know um, they just opened up a Sweet Green near our house. You know what those are? Mm-hmm. Right? These sweet, these Love great, yourself. I mean, they're so delicious. I don't know how they do it. Um, but, you know, the innovation of you can call ahead or on your app, just pre-order the thing from Sweet Green and then just pick it up. Like, you know, I'm not a scientist or anything, but like that blows my mind every time I can walk into that place and pick up my bag. That came from somewhere. And so, for me, it is less about the stuff that changes the world. It is more about the stuff that just creates new value and makes it better for someone or something. Um, and there's not an organization that I work with that is successful that isn't doing that either on the big scale or on the small scale. I do think Sweet Green's got it, um, you know. I think that they figured something out that others haven't. Um, so that's a uh, that's a great example. Comcast, which I just referenced, um, was a you know a pioneer in bringing streaming to sort of the big stage. That came out of an innovative creation process. Um, so I don't know that there's any one company that's doing it a lot better than others. I just know that every boardroom that I'm in when I'm advising a company, you know, part of their board agenda is digital transformation, yes, but really what's, what's coming next? What's going to create new value for our customers? You can't be in this game anywhere without creating something new and create new value because we're in an environment now where things are changing more rapidly than ever before, ever before. A lot of the ideas we have now will be clinically obsolete in three years. And so um, it is embedded in every organization and how they achieve it really is, um, is the trick. And culture and climate are big parts of that. So you could, in a way, boil it down, right, to, to what, what's the risk of taking a risk? What's the, what's the risk of failure? What's the benefit of success? As, as drivers of or limiters of, of, of my as an individual's desire to or willingness to like try some shit and, and, and innovate. And in a way you could say that that's about incentives, right? Like, and, and the risk. And I know that one of your specialties 
is is that you advise a lot on compensation and incentives and how that can 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 drive things or limit things yeah. and and it's funny you know before you arrived today we were talking around the table sort of preparing ourselves for this discussion and this is like totally a 30,000 foot view but like a thing that that I've heard said about um, some cultures so the, the United States capitalism and how that's driven a lot of innovation and technology and and actually one of my favorite books is is, is a book called they made America and it was about all the inventors mm. and you know my, my background I love stories of entrepreneurship and, and inventors and innovation and so forth and, and, and in a way, you could say that sort of defines a lot of the sort of American, um, you know, culture and myth and story and, 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 and what, what our country's made up of. And then I know it's been said, too, of like uh, some of the, you know, the Soviet Union, communist China, and how there are certain expertise they have. The, the students are way advanced relative to students in the U.S. on certain um, on certain levels of measure, right? But in terms of creativity and innovation, I feel like it's generally said that the West, because of, and I don't know, is it incentives? Is it, is it freedom? Is it willingness to fail? Is it, is it, is it you know, the, 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 the motivations and incentives that underpin capitalism that, that, that affect that? I don't know. I'm asking you, the expert, like, how do incentives affect creativity and innovation? So um, it's a nuanced answer because they do um, and incentives can have the opposite impact on something like creation and innovation that you would want. But structure the right way, they can create that room that we talked about for people to feel the agency and the freedom to dive in and, and express um, a desire, a willingness to create something. So, you know, I had an experience earlier in my career before I, I knew much where I was advising a small company in the energy sector that, you know, one of their three pillars of growth was going to be just what they called innovation, right? Like capital I innovation, whatever that meant. Um, so I, as their advisor, said, okay, great. Let's put innovation metrics in the annual incentive plan, right? Because, you know, on paper it makes perfect sense, right? You want people to innovate, you know, put it in the bonus plan, they'll do it because they'll get paid on it. So, you know, we carved out this little part of the bonus plan that was linked to some specific innovation measures, whatever that was, right? So, so that failed, right? Like, didn't last the year, right? Because it was hard to measure and because it didn't impact behavior in the way that, you know, we had drawn it up in our ivory tower, frankly. Um, fast forward to a few years after that where I've got a client in a different sector who, um, you know, had the same, you know, the set, maybe it was the second bullet point of their strategic plan was capital I innovation. And we took a very different approach on that one. Um, and that approach was we actually created, again, in the bonus plan, this open-ended non-measurement piece. No metrics in it, but we said, you know, 30%, Michael, of your bonus opportunity is just going to be driven by our perception of how you're helping us create the next wave. Nothing more than that. And 
that company would say that that did change the behavior of the people that could impact innovation and creation because it gave them freedom, but it was also a message that says, look, we know we can't put innovation in a box. We know that creation happens in weird ways, organically, sometimes inorganically. We just want to give you the freedom and the permission to explore that, and we want you to be trying to do it, irrespective of what it yields. We want you to be trying to do it. And so we created these guideposts around creation, but nothing more specific than that. It probably wasn't that first year, but in the second and the third years, they introduced new stuff to market, and they also changed one of their internal processes, which was like around finance, which I can't, didn't even understand. But everyone had this, whether they were in finance or product development, and many palpable things came out of it. And what that told me was, okay, this really is about freedom to act more than it is a construct designed to do X. And when you look at our research, Corn Ferry's actually done research on this, looking at things that predict correlations between what we'll call innovation and organizational success. Um, and the one factor that is most statistically significant is what I'll call freedom to act. So giving people the freedom, and I think you've got to give a mission and the values and the permission, but giving them the freedom to express and dive in without consequence is a predictor, uh, it's a better predictor of successful new stuff and new value than almost anything else you can do. So that was a learning for me that I stumbled on the hard way and then I learned later there was a study that we had done that would have just told me that had I read the thing. So. Moral of the story? Yeah, re re read the thing. It's a busy life, you know that. Can't read all this stuff. But it was a learning for me about freedom and, um, and you know, the importance of letting people bring out the best in themselves, which you can only do by giving them enough room to operate. You were a passionate consumer of escape rooms and that that subgenre of and immersive hamburgers. entertainment and hamburgers. Um, by the way, for the record, David makes probably the best cheeseburger I've ever had. That actually might be a tr I mean, that could be true what you just said. Yeah. I feel like we had great burgers last weekend. We had great burgers last weekend. Thank you. So independent of burgers, you are uh, an avid... Um, consumer of uh, escape rooms and that subgenre of immersive entertainment. That's there, there's innovation there. I mean, five, six years ago there were like two escape rooms in New York City, and now there are 2,400 or something crazy. Um, you've probably done most of them. I've done an escape room with you. Yes. Actually, had the, I had the pleasure of, of hosting David and, and two of his boys and my two boys at one of our escape rooms. Um, we escaped with one, one second. second to go. It was the record, by the way. It was a record. It was it was it was epic. Um, that was Paradiso Chapter One for those of you paying attention. And um, like, talk to us about that. Talk to us about like. There has to be some degree of. I love to do new things. I love to do new things with my kids. Like, just talk about that and your. Again, you're a passionate consumer of it. Like, like I want to know more. So I would say I'm a passionate consumer of a certain type of escape room, right? So there's all different types and genres. And to this day, by the way, our favorite 
um, has been Paradiso. Um, my boys are, they talk about it every three weeks. I would say Paradiso comes up in our house. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, some of these escape rooms now are like these, you know, like, you know, you got to pick the lock, um, you, you, know, you got to get the code, and then you move to the next one, and it's very linear. And those are less interesting to us. What we love um, is the challenge of this open environment where you've got to solve a problem and the answers aren't necessarily along a linear path, um, which are the more challenging ones, but that's thrilling. You know, the idea that you've entered an environment that is designed for you to crack a, a problem or solve a problem and and you've got to use everything that you have. Sometimes it's your eyesight, sometimes it's your smell, sometimes it's just intuition, sometimes it's smarts to escape that room and solve the mystery. Like that's what's thrilling um, to me and, and to my boys and now Levi, the five-year-old actually. Zeke and Isaac love them, but Levi, is he's done his first three escape rooms. He loves them. Um, but that's what's appealing to us. And, and listen, it is the freedom to go in there and know that I've got to use everything that I bring to this, the, you know, the person, um, everything that I bring to this, the way that I think about problems, the way that I perceive information to get out of that room. Like that's just incredibly satisfying and it's a challenge that I love. And it's not unlike, I mean, to bring it back to creation, it's not unlike the experience that you have to say, okay, there's a problem here. I need to solve it. Like, what are my resources? Like, what am I going to do to get through this problem and create something that has value or to get out of the room? You know, to me, that's how they connect. But I just love the challenge and the mystery of it because I know that I'm going to do something that I wouldn't get to do anywhere else. So I give you a lot of credit for what you've done. Um, in diving into escape rooms because it is just about my favorite medium for that reason. That's awesome. You know, my, I mean, I often think of any, like to me, it's, it's just, it's, it's like we're all, it's all one big game in a way or, or all one big puzzle, like figuring out how to innovate, how to start this business or how to, you know, we're, we're right now working on this um, sort of game that would be played inside of social media. And it's what we were working on this morning here at Counts Projects, and and it's like it's all a puzzle. It's like a puzzle, and I I often think of we did a, actually one episode about how to me like the Rubik's cube is like is a, is a sort of a visual metaphor for like any production or any starting any business is like well we solve for this and then that changes that and now we fix this but that now that doesn't work anymore and it's like getting it all to line up. It's we're you know we're I'm seeing it now with August Moon. Um, and launching the the, the drive-in um, project, August Moon Drive-in, and, and it's like we got a bunch of things lined up over the last six months, and then but then it like one thing stalled, and then two other things went out of sequence, and I was just like, oh my god, like it, it's maddening, and and I think that that to me, I think part of what drew me to escape rooms was one, it felt like a, 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 an experience sort of ripe for the theatrical transportive aspects that I love so much and sort of merging the escape rooms of five years ago with immersive theater of five years ago and making sort of the next level of escape rooms. But to me, I think on a more fundamental level, it's just, it's like the Rubik's Cube. It's But but without knowing that like you turn it this way and that way, it's like you walk in and it's 
three-dimensional yes. chess. It's like it's you don't know where to start, and then you have to figure out that, which is its own puzzle. I, I, I love them too, and I, I, I love that we uh, I love that we finished Paradiso Chapter One with one one second, second to it go. It was like the most epic. Everyone backstage was like cheering, high-fiving. It was incredible. Like that was so awesome. And here's where diversity comes into it because you know I do this with you know Zeke, my twelve-year-old, is. Um, you know, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses, but I think he may be a, an actual genius at, uh, at escape rooms. Like, he sees things in the escape room and figures things out at age 12. You know, like, I'm, I'm 45, like, I have an MBA, I'm like a real guy, you know? Like, and like you could have given me a year and I wouldn't have figured it out what he figured out. Isaac, the nine-year-old, he comes in and he sees things that I don't. So the other part of it that I like is that Again, like we bring what we bring to these situations. And part of doing it with a team is we all bring something different. It's a different perspective. And there are rooms that I've gotten out of that I only would have gotten out of because of Zeke and Isaac and what they see that I don't. And I like to think that there's something that I did or saw that helped them escape as well, even though they would challenge that. But, um, you know, you just come in with what you bring, your natural resources, and um, hopefully you've got the right portfolio to figure it all out. I mean, that's the other thing I love about it is that it's a team game. And to be able to share that with, with my sons and my boys and now with Levi, who even even Levi, the last one, he found something in a drawer we wouldn't have even thought to look into why because it was right at his height level mm -hmm. that's what i love is the connectivity between all of us and how we are codependent and and relying on each other to be able to get out of that thing i think that's a big piece of of what appeals to me about it well and you know it's a funny thing because the the, the willingness to have your son solve the problem that you couldn't to, to take that information is something that i see people get hung up on all the time it's like i'm the expert I should know, and it's like no. The the, the diverse perspectives. I'll, I'll share something. You can't see her, but we have a new intern. Uh, her name is Sarah, and she's sitting right here, and she's videoing some of the some of the social media that'll get posted. She will have posted. You know, she's 19 and a student, and we were starting to solve a problem about talking about this new game. And her perspective on social media so different than mine, and so different than than even the 20 somethings in the room like added so much value and it was so impressive to me and it, it you know she's the the intern like it could have easily been like intern don't talk get coffee like just that i mean there was an era when that was like the perspective of what like assistance provided yes. and one of the things that we've really tried to to nurture here amongst my team and within this company is like every ideas who anybody come on like let's Let's bring our different perspectives, and I think that 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 your example of, of Zeke and Isaac is dead on. I think what we've been experiencing with Sarah's input over the last couple of days working on this project is to me invaluable and could so easily be missed. You know, could so easily be. I think there are cultures that were like like if you haven't been here five years, don't talk. You know, you sit yes. in the back row and like it's ridiculous and it's and it's a shame and people are sort of shooting themselves in the foot. And I'm so I'm just reminded of that in your your both of our experiences as we're talking about them today. No, and, and part of what we talked about earlier was you know shifting your center of gravity. That is where diversity comes into it. And you know I can't tell you how many times 
um, I've been in a room where Zeke has said, Dad, maybe it's this. And I'll be like, Zeke, it's not that. They wouldn't design it that way. And the last five or six times that's happened, he's like six for six and I'm 0 for six. <laughs> Isaac has done the same thing where he said, Dad, look, you know, Isaac will see something in the room and be like, Dad, does this mean anything? And sometimes it doesn't. But about half the time it does. And I'm just, I've learned not to dismiss that stuff. And we're getting out of more rooms now than we were a year ago, in large part because I listen to Isaac, I listen to Zeke, and I'll start listening to Levi as he, uh, as he grows into it. If you could talk to yourself 20 years ago, knowing what you know now, what would you tell David of, of 24 or 25? Or version two is, you know, one of my impulses in making starting this podcast was I had this hunch that there were kids or people new to people who had a vision, a dream of I want to create this kind of experience or I want to make a film that does that or I want to start a company that could do this, but just like for for whatever reason don't have haven't had the experience or feel like they don't have the tools or the, the skill set or or something is lacking. And as someone who's been doing this a while and my, with my own fail, failures and successes along the way, have learned a bunch of shit that I felt like, I wanna share it. it can, I can share it for free in this medium called podcasts. That's the other version of this question. Pick, pick, pick your path, but, but it's like, so, and, and it said another way, what would you, how would you advise somebody who's just starting out to, to pursue, you know, to do something creative, to do something innovative, what are, and in a way, we've talked about it throughout this, this podcast, but like one nugget. So my perspective on the advice I would give to young Dave or young us has definitely changed as I have learned from, um, you know, people in their late teens, 20s, early 30s. Um, you know, I had a worldview when I was 25 about... Um, what I and we were capable of. And there's something, and I think the world has changed for the 25-year-old, by the way. I think the possibilities today are more endless than they felt when I was 25, 20 years ago, um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so my guidance, my generic guidance that I would always give is, um, and I just, I believe this, I believed it um, intuitively at age 25, and I believe it now because I've, I've learned it and lived it, but life gets a, life's a lot better when you have found the thing that is for you and that you really groove on. And sometimes that doesn't directly correlate to economic and financial success early on. I mean, you know, the, the salaries that I made my first five years out of college, um, you know, doing environmental protection work. I mean, you know, they, they barely kept us afloat. Um, and yet it led to a more successful, a more lucrative career down the line where I was still able to maintain the thread of what I really loved, which was the human motivation. Um, so my go with where your heart is it know, and your intuition is. It knows things that you don't. And that is really hard to do when you come out of a college and your parents are looking at you and you're seeing friends do interesting things. Like you, you, sometimes you have to put that stuff aside and go with your intuition and your gut. So the second thing I didn't know when I was 25 is just how capable 
we can be. You know, so I've got a a cousin who, um, you know, is a real innovator in the world. He is building something new um, in a new company called Troops, which involves artificial intelligence and will improve and enhance the functionality of business tools like Salesforce. And, you know, this is a guy who just from very early on wanted to create stuff, believed that he could and did. And he had the resources to do it. He had the willingness to do it. He made things happen. He wasn't afraid to fail. But any of us can do what we want and create as long as we're willing to sort of stay the course and announce our intention to the world. And that was the thing that I wish I knew when I was 25 was if I was intentional enough about an idea that I had, by now I am certain I would be doing something with that. And we all have that capability. It seems hard. It is hard work, but if the work is there and the desire is there, more times than not, you are going to get there. And I've seen that play out more in this new younger generation than I did in mine because our mindsets were so different. So that's my advice is do follow your heart. And I know that that's generic, but I really believe it. And the second one is announce your intention to the world and let it align behind you and think that you can because you probably can. You probably can. Awesome advice. Awesome advice. David, such a pleasure, man. Such a this, pleasure. This is such a joy. Um, you've been listening to Producing Innovation. Uh, it's episode 13. Um, until our next escape room, burger, or general hang, man. Thank you so much. Let's do one of them in the next few weeks. Done. Please remember to rate, share, comment, and subscribe to Producing Innovation wherever you listen to your podcasts.